Welcome to Southside Community Church. Enjoy our Sunday morning message. So in the early 1800s, there was an author named Alexander Dumas. Anyone know who Alexander Dumas is? Jan does. All right. Tyler, your degree in college was English? Did you have to read Dumas in school? Dumas wrote one of the best, the best books that turned into a movie of all time, The Count of Monte Cristo. If you guys ever seen that, that's Alexander Dumas. But he also wrote another famous book. Does anyone know what it is? The Three Musketeers. Thank you, Jan. The Three Musketeers is incredible. Absolutely incredible. But there's four musketeers, which always doesn't make sense to me because D'Artagnan isn't part of the three musketeers. But this story is about uh, four swashbuckling uh, companions. Now, a swashbuckler is someone who just fights with their sword and probably wears an oversized belt. Um, Like Johnny Depp in Pirates of the Caribbean, that's a swashbuckler. This is about four swashbuckling men who are all about romance, and they fight for justice under King Louis XIV in the 1600s. And the three musketeers have four musketeers, and they're all really, really different. Different. You have D'Artagnan, who is the hero of the story, and he's completely ruled by romance. Everything he does has to do with romance. And then you have uh, Athos, who is the father figure to D'Artagnan, and he acts like a dad the whole story. And then you have a really good-looking but not very smart swordsman named uh, Aramis, and he just flings his sword and, you know, shows how good-looking he is. That's all he does. And then you have the loud and brash and probably somewhat annoying character in Parthos who just gets on everybody's nerves. So you have these four musketeers, and they are all really, really different, and they all have really different styles of being master swordsmen, but they work amazingly well together. Does anyone know? Does anyone know what the Three Musketeers motto was throughout the book? That's right. One for all and all for one. One for all and all for one. Despite their differences, the Four Musketeers were able to achieve great things because they lived by this code. All for one and one for all. Didn't matter what they were like. That's what they were about. All for one and one for all. This morning, we are going to talk about biblical unity. All for one and one for all. And we're going to do something a little bit different. We've been walking through the book of Ephesians. And if you've been with us for a while, you know we like to take a slow stroll through a book in the Bible, through large chunks of Scripture. And we've been um, walking through Ephesians chapter 1 here for uh, over a month. But we're actually going to jump to Ephesians chapter 4. And this morning we're going to be in Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. And the reason being is because Ephesians is broken into two different sections. Paul often in his letters would begin his his letters with really deep theological instruction, um, some heady things, some things that really takes a lot to, to grasp and understand. And the Spirit really has to be with you and with me for that to happen, and then he would end his letters with practical application. 
And so Ephesians is a little bit of a longer letter, and uh, 1 through 3 is almost completely doctrine. 4 through 6 is what do we do based on what we know about God. And so we're actually, Greg and I are going to be hitting us, hitting you guys from both sides. We're going to do a little bit of 1 through 3 and a little bit of 4 through 6 because we want, we want the practical to come alongside um, the theological as well. It's going to be really cool because we get to have a little bit of a snapshot of this thing we talk about a lot, that Christianity is not only about what you know, it's also about, also about who you are becoming. It's not only about what you know, it's also about who you are becoming. And there's a lot of tension there, a lot of tension in that statement because here's the deal, you can go to Bible college and you can answer every question to every theological test correctly, you can have 100%. You can be A-plus student and not be a Christian. You can do that. And still, Paul asks us to know about God. He sees that it's vastly important that you think rightly about God. Thinking rightly about God isn't enough. And there's also tension on the other side, because you can outwardly act like the greatest person to ever live. You can fake it your whole life and never know God. And still, Paul sees it vastly important that your actions are being continuously changed and conformed into the image of Christ. And so we don't throw out the baby with the bathwater in this. We don't say, well, some people know everything about God and they're just jerks, so I don't care. You know, it doesn't work that way. And some people, well, they're just so nice and they don't have to know anything about God. We are meant to embrace the tension and do what we can by the Spirit, to learn about God and let it affect the way that we live. We're meant to think deeply about God and what we know about God is meant to drastically change who we are. And so we are going to do some theology some weeks and then we're going to do some application. This morning is more of an application. So we're in Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. Let's go ahead and read that. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, that's Paul, who has been put in prison, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. One of Paul's main modes of instructing churches in his letters is this thing called an exhortation. And an exhortation is an address that emphatically urges someone to do something. So he'll teach like, all right, you, this is who you are in God, therefore, go do this. That's an exhortation, and he urges, so he's exhorting. He has three exhortations in chapter 4. Today, we're only going to talk about the first exhortation. What we are meant to do based on who we are in Christ is this. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling by being eager to maintain unity. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling by being eager to maintain unity. And so what Paul's saying is that to walk in a manner that's worthy of your calling 
It's marked by your life being eager to maintain unity with other churches and other believers. To walk in a manner that's worthy of of what you've been called into with Christ means that you are eager to maintain unity with other churches and other believers. It's at the forefront of what you do. The call of the first three chapters, Ephesians 1 through 3, worked out in your life is supposed to look like a desire to maintain unity. Now, unity is a little bit abstract, and I, I, I've heard it my whole life. I know that there's unity conferences, and there's you know, charges towards unity, and to me, it, 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 without giving it legs, it just feels really theoretical. What are we really saying? Like, what do we really want when we say we want unity? And that really matters, because um, it's extremely important to know what kind of unity Paul's talking about. Because unity in, in itself is not the goal. Right? And I'm going to use some extremes here. But if you unify around the wrong things, it doesn't really do anything any good. Like, you can have unity and it be bad unity. If you unify around slavery, you have unity, right? You're together. It's just not good unity. If you unify around world domination, you have unity. You're together. It's just bad unity. And in the church, when you unify around secondary issues and you build boundaries towards everyone else, you become known more about what you're for and what you're against instead of about who you are in Christ. And so you have unity with people who you have these secondary issues with. It's just not great unity. Unity around bad things, this is going to be like super, like you guys got to get this, this is really deep. Unity around bad things leads to really bad things. When you unify around bad things, it gets worse. But the flip side is the same. When you have unity around good things, really good things happen. Really good things happen. And so the goal is not just unity. You can have unity in anything. If you're an Ohio State Buckeye fan in here, You've got unity with any Buckeye in the United States. You go down to Florida, and that's all they fly is Ohio State Buckeye. I mean, sorry, Dwayne. If you're a Michigan fan, too, Dwayne and Tyler back. No, Tyler's a Michigan State fan, so. Anyway, you will have unity. It's going to happen. So that's not the main goal that Paul is talking about. What Paul is talking about is maintaining Jesus-centered unity. Making the main thing the main thing. Primary issues of Christ should unify us. And that's the urge, the exhortation of Paul that he gives the believers. Maintain the unity that you have in Jesus. Maintain it. And I think it might be helpful before we go on to talk about what biblical unity is and what it isn't. This was really helpful for me as I studied. Biblical unity is not uniformity. Biblical unity is not uniformity. To be unified does not mean that you all look and act the exact same. Now this is an issue in the church. It's really easy to believe that if everyone just looked like you, then unity would happen, right? If ever like if if my style of Christianity was everywhere, then we would be unified. And then Oftentimes, and I've said these words, if those guys, because I want to be ambiguous and I don't want to say who I'm talking about, but if those guys just did it like us, 
Like the whole thing would be great. It would be fine. We would be unified. But biblical unity is not uniformity. You're not all meant to look the same. And when you think that biblical unity is uniformity, you ostracize people who aren't like you. And so when you talk about unity, do you really mean that you just want people who are hard to love and the people who, aren't not, who are not like you to just not be around you anymore? That's a really easy way to be unified with everyone. You don't have to be around anyone who isn't like you. Easy unity. But that's not biblical unity. Unity is not uniformity. In fact, biblical unity is meant to be diverse, and it will be the most diverse. In Revelation 7, John writes this, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So picture this. When we are all standing before the throne of God, you're probably going to be standing next to someone who looks very different from you. You're probably going to be standing next to someone who speaks a different language than you. You're probably going to be standing next to someone who has a different expression of worship than you do. They probably won't like the Ohio State Buckeyes. But you will be, get this, you will be the most unified you have ever been in the history of your life. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation worshiping together. It's not uniformity. It's diversity in Christ. And biblical unity is not building walls and barricades to keep you know, those guys out. It's not hovering and protecting from them or from that style of Christianity. That's not what biblical unity is. It's coming together around Christ no matter who you are. And so here's, there's lots of definitions, but this is the one that I chewed on and I came up with. What's biblical unity? Christians are bound to God and to fellow believers by faith in Jesus Christ, living in harmony despite all differences. That's what Paul is asking us to maintain. That Christians are bound to God and to fellow believers by faith in Jesus Christ, living in harmony despite all differences. It's meant to be diverse. All different types of expressions of God's kingdom in harmony together. Because of Jesus. And Paul urges us towards this. He's begging Christians to care about this stuff. And so he exhorts you to eagerly maintain unity. Verse 3. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. What Paul is explaining, and he explains throughout much of the New Testament, is that unity in Christ, biblical unity, is a top-tier value in the kingdom. It's a top-tier value. It's something that you should have. I mean, if you have like a value list at your house, you should have this written down. We want to maintain unity. We see this in the life of Jesus. He was completely unified with the Spirit and with the Father. 
He never did anything, anything that the Father and the Spirit weren't about. And Paul draws on this for the reason to maintain unity. We're supposed to desire and maintain it because Jesus desires and maintains unity with us. So let's move just a little bit further into this definition through the abstract and the theoretical. What does it mean to maintain unity? Well, the first thing is, I went and looked up what is the definition of maintain. And apparently, it's to guard or to keep watch. And the word that's used in the Bible is is specifically towards like a prisoner. You're like making sure that it doesn't escape you. It's like your job depends on it. If the prisoner is, you're a really bad guard if the prisoner escapes, right? That's what Paul's saying. We're supposed to maintain unity like that. We're supposed to keep guard and keep watch. And so first and foremost, it's important to realize that the exhortation to maintain unity implies that we never created the unity in the first place. And that's the theme of Ephesians, that Jesus initiates everything and completes everything. Chapters 1 through 3, we learn this, at least in chapter 1 so far, that if you are in Christ, you have been chosen. You have been adopted. You have been sealed by the Spirit. All initiated and completed by God in you and for you. Not of your own choice. The last time I preached, I talked about adoption. And what we learned is that you are adopted. Whether you want to be or not, you're adopted. God gifted you with your adoption. It's the same with unity. He gives us as a good gift, unity with churches and with fellow believers. And so the exhortation from Paul is that we are supposed to maintain that unity. Essentially, don't screw it up. You've already been given the unity. And that's what he calls walking in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. To preserve the unity that's already been established in us by the Spirit of God. So what's our responsibility? What are we supposed to do in light of Paul's exhortation? And this is the practical. This is chapters 4 through 6. That there's, we, we're meant to be changed by what we know. And so our responsibility, and this is personal. This is, it goes much deeper than just um, communal. This is personal. You wake up in the morning, you have personal responsibility by the Spirit, partnered with the Spirit, to do something with your life. Our, our responsibility that's been entrusted to us is to be eager to maintain unity. Paul recognizes that Christians have a unique ability to do the opposite. And I have a unique ability to do the opposite. Play any sport with me at all. Starting in second grade, right? My mom pulled me off an upward court by my ear because I didn't like how the kid was not letting me score. I'm really good at being divisive. I don't want to be, but I have a unique ability to be that way. We're really good at being divided and finding ways to be divided and talking about those guys. And Paul wants us to rectify that. And so he urges us to eagerly want to have unity. We're called to value it as much as God does and to value each other as much as God values us. 
So what does it mean to be eager? Eager means that you really want something very much. You want something really, really bad. You're eager towards it. That's the type of feeling we're supposed to feel towards maintaining unity. So what do you do when you really, really want something? I mean, if you're like me, if I really, really, really want something, the first thing I do is I plant the seed in my wife. I go, you know, it's a new softball bat. No, I mean, there's tons of things. There's softball bat. There's a tons. There's tons of things. But I'll usually start to, like, you know, warm her up to the idea because I'm eager about it, and I'm going to get there. I really want it. I pursue it. That's what happens when you really want something. You pursue it. You go after it. You use your own personality and tactics to make sure that you can obtain it. That's what it looks like to be eager about something. And Paul talks about that being the emotional response to how we are meant to maintain unity. Now, every once in a while, there's a really special team that's working together, eager to maintain their unity. And I never thought that I was going to talk about the, two, the 2004 Detroit Pistons, you know, in a sermon, but I was a huge Rip Hamilton fan. He was my favorite basketball player growing up. He could run off the curl screen and just, he was butter. In 2004, the Detroit Pistons had, like, no superstars at all, at all, and they were outmatched. The Los Angeles Lakers had, like, everybody. I'm talking Carl Malone. Kobe Bryant, Shaquille O'Neal, and Gary Payton, all on the same team. And I know I'm dating myself a little bit, and I'm going to move past it quick. But Larry Brown, their coach, talked about the most important piece of their team was to be unified together. That if they played together, despite their differences, they could achieve something great. And in 2004, they did. They won the NBA championship. Not because they had one person who was everyone conformed to that person, it was because they had a perfect group of different individuals working in harmony. And Larry Brown fought for their unity with all that he had. He was eager. He was eager to maintain the unity of the Detroit Pistons, and they won the whole thing. He knew that they would be impossible to stop if they were eager to maintain unity. And that's the same with our walk together. We're meant to be eager to maintain unity. We are meant to see each other and say, like, every, nothing else matters right now. I need to be eager to maintain. We, we have a difference of an opinion. We should not divide. We must stay together. Eagerly maintain the unity with all that you have. And Paul moves it even further to practicality. How do you maintain unity personally? What does it look like? There are four characteristics of a Christian who is eager to maintain unity, and they're quite different to what I thought they were going to be. And they're here in verse 2. Here's what he says. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. The four characteristics of a Christian who is eager to maintain unity Practically, what does it look like in your life to be eager to maintain unity? It's this. Be humble. Be gentle with each other. Be patient. Bear with one another in love. And this is where the rubber meets the road because unity goes from abstract to personal. We talk about how much we want unity, 
But when it comes down to it, unity has a cost. Unity has a cost. We're meant to be humble. That, the first one, I'm like, I lost 10 seconds into my day. It's hard because when you really, really want something, when you're eager to maintain this that God has given you, you have to put the legs on it. So I want to quickly walk through these and give some practicals. Maintaining unity is no longer a theory. And for me, when things go from theory to real, it's scary. Number one, to be eager to maintain unity, your characteristic is this, humility. If you want to be countercultural, be humble. Not false humility. One time, I saw a guy getting a fight on a basketball court, and as he was getting pummeled, he was yelling, I forgive you. Like, but spiting the guy. I forgive you. Like, it was hilarious. He was being false. He had false humility. Not that. Be actually humble. To maintain unity, we have to be humble. And that's really hard because pride creeps up everywhere. Pride creeps up everywhere. You begin to be humble and then you're proud about how humble you are. Man, look how humble I'm being. How ni- like you start to say, man, I was so nice this week. Well, you're being prideful about it. Right? It's so easy to creep up. Pride doesn't have to only do with external actions. It's internal. It's how you think. And so if you even think you're better than someone, if you even think you're better than someone, you've got pride. And then you're not being humble. And then there's a direct path to division because it begins inside. We start to think we're one way. And then we start to think that other, people's are, other people are, are this other way. And division begins. What Paul's saying is that to maintain unity with anyone, you have to humble yourself. If you're married, and I've been married for just a short time, this is so true. Our unity is destroyed when I am prideful. All the time. But when we come together in humility, it's like beautiful harmony. We're meant to humble ourselves long enough to listen. This is what it looks like to maintain unity in the church. Humble yourself long enough to listen. To admit when you're wrong. It's hard for me. To admit when you don't know. Also hard for me. To admit that our way isn't the only way and it's not the best way. If you truly want there to be unity, the exhortation from Paul is simple. Be humble. And that's just the first one. And so, obviously, my question is, how do I, I mean, if I can't be humble, can I have unity? That's where the Spirit of God is promised to your life. That humility is possible as far as the Spirit is empowering you to be humble. And that's it. Number two, gentleness with one another. When things go wrong, or you feel like you've been wronged, how do you respond? Are you harsh? Are you harsh with the people that you're closest with? And that's the easiest person to be harsh with, right? Because they know you, and they know you don't really mean it, right? How do you respond? 
I'm really thankful that Jesus responds with gentleness to me. And I'm meant to draw on the gentleness of Christ when I deal with others because my tendency is to be opposite, is to create division by being harsh. And when you're harsh with someone, it's like driving a speedboat in a lake when there's all these people trying to paddleboard or be on a kayak. So this summer I was on Lake Buckhorn and I decided I was going to kayak from one end to the other instead of be on our you know, family boat, which was, I don't know why I decided to do that. I thought it would be just this amazing feat of strength. And these speedboats, it was over 4th of July, these speedboats are just flying through Lake Buckhorn. And like every 30 seconds, a massive wake is throwing me off course. And I got, this is all I have, right? When you're harsh with someone, you leave a wake behind you. We don't want to do that. Jesus did not leave wakes when he dealt with people. He breathed life, and that's what we're called to do as well. Don't be harsh. Third, we're meant to be patient with one another. People are not always going to do something the way that you think it should be done. Rarely is that going to happen. And this is just really simple. We can do this in our homes. We can just be patient with one another and say, you know what? That way probably works too. And I'm okay with it. But to the spiritual side, what does that mean? It means we don't rush each other. Ray Ortland talks about this. We don't put timelines on growth. We're patient with our understanding of God. Another way that the Bible talks about patience is long-suffering, which means patience despite troubles. It's hard, and we're still patient, trusting that God is going to get it done in the end. Being able to not rush through the hard stuff. We're not forcing an answer, and we're not forcing someone to conform. We're trusting that as we come alongside, the Spirit is going to work. And lastly, bearing with one another in love. We don't give up on each other. We don't think that someone's a lost cause. In Colossians 3.14, Paul writes this, Put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. That's biblical unity. And the key to harmonious living is to above all put on love. That's the characteristics of the gospel expressed in action. We don't get to be proud anymore. We don't get to be harsh. We don't get to be impatient. We don't get to be arrogant because Jesus isn't that way with us. And so we don't get to be that way with others. Imagine if Southside was defined by the opposite. Imagine if we were defined by proud, harsh, impatient, and we gave up on people quickly. We wouldn't have a church. Or people would be coming out of coercion. I I wouldn't be here, that's for sure. That's a church that's fractured and not unified. Now think think about yourself. If you are defined by those characteristics, proud, harsh, impatient, and you gave up on people quickly, I imagine that's really hard to be unified with anything or anyone. 
Let's also imagine the opposite. If we were defined by humility, by gentleness, by patience, by love, that is a place that maintains the unity that the Spirit has given to us already. So the practical application this morning is to ask God, if you display humility and gentleness and patience and love in your life, and then ask God, pray and ask Him this week, how can I recognize when I'm not displaying this? How can I recognize when I'm actually being divisive and not being eager to maintain unity with my fellow believers and friends and family? It's really hard, but as we dive in and we trust the Spirit with this, He promises promises to make it known for us. And then, this is where we partner with the Spirit. He helps us to see where we're not this way and then we're able to step into it. Next time, I'm going to trust God with this one and not myself. That's it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for gifting us with unity in union with you and caring about it so much and for trusting us to maintain it. And I'm really thankful that you give your spirit to us to maintain it because I'm not going to do it on my own. I'm going to do all the things that I always do when I'm operating out of an unhealthy place. I'm going to protect myself and be proud and harsh and impatient and I'm going to give up. But with your spirit, Lord, I'm going to be humble and gentle and patient and put on love. And Thank you for that gift as well. And I pray that that's what we do as we go forward this week. In your name, Jesus, amen. Thank you for listening. Check out our website at southsideworcester.com.